This episode is brought to you by the Arvada Center because they're kicking off their summer concert series in June. Relax under the stars at the Arvada Center's outdoor amphitheater and take in acts like Melissa Etheridge, Big Richard, Tower of Power, Preservation Hall Jazz Band, The Spin Doctors, and so much more. Concerts are scheduled for June through September. You can find a whole schedule of events and get your tickets today at arvadacenter.org. That's arvadacenter.org. Today on CityCast Denver. For the first time in 12 years, Denver will have a new mayor this summer. It'll either be former CEO of the Denver Chamber of Commerce, Kelly Bruff, or the former state senator, Mike Johnston. So this week, as ballots are being mailed out, producer Paul Caroli and I are sitting down with each of them one last time. Bruff is up first today, but don't forget to come back tomorrow for our interview with Mike Johnston. Today is Wednesday, May 17th. I'm Bree Davies, and here's what Denver's talking about. Kelly Bruff, welcome back to CityCast Denver. Thank you so much for having me. So, Kelly, you've been on the show a couple of times, but not since you made the runoff. You were the second highest vote getter behind Mike Johnston. He got 24%. You got 20%. What did you take away from those results? Uh, You know, I just have so much gratitude. I'll be honest, last fall, you know, when we were just getting started in the race, people said to me, there's no way you'll still be standing in that runoff. You've never run for office before. You know, you don't have all the kind of systems and databases and all true. And so what I took away is just thank you, Denver. I love you so much. And I'm so happy to still be standing. Hmm. Well, Kelly, this is your third appearance on the show. Um, You've now done, I don't know, countless interviews and other appearances, debates, forums. We're trying to focus today on things we haven't heard you talk about already, but I thought it might be nice to give you the opportunity first. If if there's something about yourself that you haven't told the voters that you <laughs> wanted to, you know, here's here's an opportunity. Somebody the other day said to me, we're going to, you know, tell us one thing no one knows. And I was like, seriously, you think there's anything no one knows about me? At this point, yeah. Uh, but I do have one maybe we haven't talked about. Uh, I love cooking uh, and uh, particularly baking bread. Hmm. And so I have baked a loaf of bread uh, almost every week uh, for my family. Uh, and I'm doing a terrible job during this campaign of getting it done. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Was this, a, was this a pandemic hobby that no. you picked up? As a matter of fact, I was the one who was angry because everybody else oh. bought all my yeast. Yep. <laughs> I remember that. my role. I totally, I tried to buy flour at one point for something else. And I was like, oh, I guess I'll buy this $10 fancy flour because it's all that's left. But yeah, that's, yeah. I could see that. What do you think about the altitude thing oh. when it comes to baking? Is that a myth or is that real? Uh, you know, I haven't had real issues with it, but I, I think particularly like baking bread and mm-hmm. stuff like that, you um, probably experiment until you get a feel for the dough that works. Mm-hmm. And so I probably don't even know the measurements anymore of um, okay. if I'm adding more flour. Okay. So you're a pro. <laughs> All right. I'm, okay. I understand You now. can eat my bread. Let's just say <laughs> you that. You can try it and see. <laughs> see how it goes. Okay. Well, (laughs) we're not talking about bread anymore, but um, we do want to get a little serious. So 
before the the first round of votes, Denver reported that you uh, your long term partner is a lobbyist named David Kenny. Um, he has been or is being paid to lobby the city on behalf of uh, folks like Stan Kroenke, which many folks know as the gentleman behind Ball Arena of many things. Um, Cal Fullenweidner, who's a big developer around DIA uh, for Frontier and Excel. I think voters are going to be curious about how that relationship is going to work if you become mayor, if you're in that office. How would your relationship uh, with David change or work if you became mayor? Yeah. David and I actually talked about this before I even got in the race. And what he said, and I agreed, is he won't represent anyone doing business with the city. He's already notified his clients as such. And I'm very grateful because, frankly, no conflicts are really important to me, but even the perception of a conflict. So we removed it. He won't do business with anyone or represent anyone doing business with the city. Did he actually cancel contracts? He will. Yeah. He's notified all of his clients that uh, if I'm successful, and he's being pretty optimistic, which I love, mm-hmm. uh, but if I'm successful, then those contracts end. Hmm. Well, what about his like historic ties in the city? You know, he's got, there's the, the more official side of the lobbying work, but then there's just like, he's a very well-connected guy who people know he's been in contract with Frontier Airlines and maybe he will be again in the future. What about that sort of less formal way of lobbying and contracting with city entities and his position to you? Like, do you see any other potential conflicts of interest beyond just those specific contracts? Uh, Well, in the city, you disclose if you're representing a client. uh, And so there wouldn't be those kind of, uh, I'm not sure what the informal kind of piece of it is. I will say this, um, as a woman, mm-hmm. I'm asked the question, uh, will you make decisions on your own? I've never heard a man actually asked that question, uh, but I can assure you I've been a CEO and a president of a complex major organization. I was chief of staff to John Hickenlooper. I'll make the decisions. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know how to uh, manage and operate an organization. And so I'm not concerned at all about my ability to do that. Yeah, for sure. I think I, I just want to clarify. I don't think Paul was asking that in that sense, though. I totally yeah. get that you get that question while other candidates <laughs> will not get that question. Yeah. I think it was more just like I'm thinking about my husband is a very well-known musician in this town. So sometimes people think, oh, well, maybe Brie gets into these events or Brie knows how to do these things because mm. of who she's around all the time. But you're saying, is he just going to go dormant? Is he just going to take a nap while you're while you're yeah. working? I mean, I mean, he's not going to do any work in the city, period. Okay. But I will say, you know, one of the things that I've really benefited from uh, that I probably underestimated, and that is having a partner who can be so supportive of when you're going through. Frankly, I've never run. So his understanding of what campaigns look like and uh, can anticipate what I might experience in that emotional support has been incredible. And I'm so grateful for that. I'm sure. Well, one one sort of tangential issue to this was, um, I mean, Stan Kroenke in particular, who, Gre- who Bree mentioned, he's been a client of David and he's expected to deliver a plan to redevelop the parking lots around Ball Arena, likely during the next mayor's time in office. If you were to become mayor and you were negotiating that deal, what priorities would you be pushing for? Yeah, uh, well, uh, plans like that that are uh, area development plans go through city council. And so I also think that's a powerful way uh, to ensure that those plans are developed in a manner that's consistent uh, with the vision of the city. And certainly, I think, whether it's uh, any place downtown, um, I'll give you an example. Uh, I worked at Metro, uh, MSU Denver, Mm -hmm. and some of my capacity working there was the potential for development there. 
and thinking about how that's uh, the right place for density, for housing that could serve, that's more affordable for students, staff, and faculty. So I saw a connection to the opportunity for that development. Um, and I'm excited to see what city council approves as that final plan. So we have a vision for what it should look like in our downtown and, and how we make it really work. If you look at those uh, plots of land from Auraria campus, kind of all along that corridor that hasn't been developed from Ball Arena to River Mile, we probably have some of the best service of light rail of anywhere in our city. And so real potential, I think, for development there that can serve our city and bring more affordable housing and and density. So affordable housing and density. What, what are the other parts of that that excite you? It sounds like this seems like a, you're optimistic about it. That's the impression I'm getting. Yeah, listen, I think we uh, affordable housing for me is my top priority, or at least in the top two or three. And this is where we know where we build in our future really matters. Land use is probably one of the top decisions that the council and the mayor will help drive. And so building around where we've already made investments uh, in our light rail system, but also where we have major bus routes, that's where you really want that affordability. Uh, it not only helps families save money because they can use transit, but it starts to address the other critical issues we have of air quality and um you know, our environment and climate issues and uh, a number of challenges and housing affordability overall by having more density and less expensive options for people to live. But we'd lose parking. <laughs> so much wonderful parking would go mm. away, mm -hmm. Kelly. I'm sure there's people who'd be upset about that as well. Yeah. Yeah. Listen, uh, I know people uh, may be upset about it, but we all know in a city, a surface parking lot is like, you know, one of the Mm, least valuable uses yeah. when you think of a site. And so not only am I, you know, thinking about density where we should have it, but I'm looking around our city at those surface lots that we all own and how I as mayor could help put a product on there that's a for sale condo product uh, by removing the price of the land. And you can even maintain parking. You can build on top of it. Um, so you're not adding to it, but you're also not removing. And we start to put uh, housing throughout our city that's affordable and get back into where you can own a home again. You know, frankly, I moved here in 1986 and what changed my, my family's life was we could actually buy a home then and begin to build wealth. I couldn't do it today and I feel strongly that the next generation needs to have that option in our city and I intend to help deliver on it. Hmm. And those surface lots are very important in that strategy. Well, when we're on parking, I mean, this is such an interesting issue that we get so much feedback on whenever we talk about it. And mm -hmm. by feedback, I mean complaints, no matter what. <laughs> um, you said that if they do build, when they do build, you can have parking in those buildings above the surface. But some people say that those kinds of parking minimums are actually part of the problem. Do you feel like there's any, or like, what is the problem to you when it comes to parking in this city? What are we doing wrong? I'll try to make sure you get some more negative phone calls. How's that? <laughs> Bring um, it on. Uh, but we're one of the worst single occupancy vehicles in the nation for driving. <clears throat> and so what we're doing wrong is not figuring out how we create alternatives that people are willing to take. And I think we just have to commit to do it. We, we can't widen our roads. Uh, we don't have the land use anymore. Uh, we know that we have to build more densely and we have to figure out how we help move people on alternatives. So where that density happens, I strongly support. Um, because if I'm a half a mile from a light rail station or a major bus route, we know it's way easier for me to make a different choice than driving my car. And you need me to make a different choice. So 
This is really important to me, too, and it is how we have to build for our future. So, Kelly, as mayor, you're going to be, I mean, you have to be a champion for this whole city, and it's your job to represent every community. I wonder if there are parts of the city that are sort of like your blind spots, like if there are neighborhoods you don't know well or um, you just don't spend a lot of time in. I wonder what those areas of the city are and how do you plan on uh, connecting with and getting to know those communities better? Um, so uh, the nice thing is I have uh, raised my girls here and originally on the west side. Now I live in more central Denver or south central Denver. Um, that said, uh, there's always parts of the city uh, or parts of this job that you don't know well, um, or every job, I should say. Uh, but I'll give you some examples. You know, I uh, I did a couple things. One this summer, uh, I don't mean to imply that I know every neighborhood, but I rode my bike through every single neighborhood in our city. Um, because I wanted to get a sense of it and the difference. And you start to have an appreciation for, um, like for me, um, the West Side didn't have the kind of tree canopy. And when we talk about getting out of your car, I can honestly say on my bike, I was like, I don't think I'd ride over here as much. I kind of forgot uh, from uh, when my girls were young and we lived over there and I was commuting in uh, how much hotter it is in the summer. Northeast Denver's the same way. But I feel like there's communities all over the city uh, where even if I think I know them, uh, I think we have to get past this notion that I know what's best for anybody. And that is probably one thing I've learned in my life is the way I build the best strategies, programs, solutions to address the challenges is to engage community. And so you'll see me do that throughout the city. I think uh, some of the communities I'm most excited about the potential are those who have frankly seriously organized because of a lack of attention. I think about Globeville, Elyria, Swansea, uh, Montbello. These are communities who I think have, uh, Barnum, have really you know, been forgotten and, and don't feel their voices being heard. You'll see some real intentionality for me on how we connect and help support the work they're already doing, but even go a little further and faster. Well, it's interesting you brought up Elyria Swansea and uh, a community that's had their voice been overlooked and not heard. We have talked to some people who are in this activist group, the GES Coalition. They've been organizing events, specifically one last fall, to call for this triangle of land that was the city took using eminent domain. They wanted to take it back and then build like a community plaza, something that would be more of a resource for mm -hmm. food access. How would you support their efforts? Yeah, I think that's a, uh, I also think they're working on a land trust potential and what that could look like up there. And so I think how I'd support them is meet with them, understand uh, their vision and how we can partner together to accomplish it. I'm a huge believer in land trusts and the potential that it delivers for particularly housing affordability. But we rarely talk about it, how our small businesses can afford to stay in business and compete against what we see often larger you know, national chains coming in. And so I'm very interested in that. And so for me, it would be a partnership, really understanding what do you want and, and, and what's the real goal and how together can we accomplish it. So community is like kind of a buzzword, but I judge people a lot on who their community is and who they consider um, the people that they trust in their, in their inner circle. So I wonder, um, who do you consider your community? Who are your trusted advisors? And where do you get local news and information? Yeah. Um, oh, wow. What a huge question. There's so many uh, answers in this. I would say uh, I'll start kind of with the latter. I try to get uh, local news and information from, well, of course, CityCast. <laughs> 
Um, thank but, you for that. Thank you. Yeah, of course. <laughs> uh, but in multiple sources, you know, I would say social media for me, uh, I was a late entrant, uh, but I really appreciate some of the insights I gain. What I'm sensitive to, though, is uh, opinion versus news today and how you sort through it. Probably my my greatest source of information, what's happening in our city, are the people themselves. I had the opportunity to develop probably more diverse relationships early in my life because my girls are biracial. Their father was indigenous, um, Ojibwe. And what that means, and I don't think you fully, I don't think people necessarily appreciate this unless you have uh, family members who are a different race, that you really do attract vastly different relationships and you build vastly different relationships. And uh, so for me, I've had strong connection to um, Latina leaders throughout my life. Uh, they continue to be um, provide me great insight into how to think about the issues and challenges from different perspectives. Uh, but I would also say I feel uh, in, in almost every community, a connection and an understanding and an opportunity to learn. So it's just the intention, I guess, is how I'd answer it of reaching out. Even if I feel like I don't know someone well or an area well, uh, I'm willing to be extremely vulnerable and say, I need your help and I need understanding. What's an example of that where you were like, put yourself out there and you were vulnerable and you like really learned something that you didn't, mm. it was uncomfortable. Uh, I would say the, probably the things where, uh, and it was really early in my life, um, but starting to recognize the privilege I have of being white. I married my husband at 22, and so I have two daughters, one who can pass as white and one who did not or does not. And you see early on, right, how different their life is. And, and you feel, as a parent, you're trying to prepare your daughter to not internalize some of the experiences my youngest daughter had. And I reached out to other communities to help me understand as a mom how I prepare her and think about those issues. And I think you have to be very vulnerable to acknowledge the privilege I had uh, in my life as a white woman. This episode is brought to you by Pine Melon, the farmer's market delivered. Pine Melon is a next-generation grocery delivery app that partners with over 200 farmers, ranchers, and producers in Colorado to help make fresh, locally sourced foods available to the Denver community at fair prices. Get high-quality meats, eggs, and dairy from small local farms, fresh-baked breads from local bakeries, and more, as well as all of your favorite pantry staples. Best part is, Pine Melon offers same-day delivery to Denver and soon Boulder within a two-hour window, no subscription necessary. Save time in your busy schedule and get fresh and healthy groceries delivered right to your door. Join the movement and support local today. Use promo code CityCastDenver for $75 off your first delivery at PineMelon.com. That's PineMelon.com. Well, uh, Kelly, you've talked about biking around the city. As mayor, you'll have the chance to do what we all want as bikers, which is fix that one dang pothole. Um, is there a particular spot or piece of badly designed infrastructure in the city <laughs> that drives you nuts that you would, you know, put a little extra weight on getting that one fixed? Uh, trying to commute on your bike across Mississippi. Um, I would just say if you've ever done it, I haven't done it. What's happening yeah, there? It's just rough. So um, around Broadway, when you're crossing Mississippi going west, you know, it's just really hard. So I'm really interested in, you know, this notion of 
complete streets and real paths. And that said, this is also a great example of learning. So I've commuted on my bike for 30 years. This mm-hmm. summer, you know, when I was doing campaign stuff, I was riding all over the city, just going to meetings and finding new routes. And I think you st- I started to really appreciate uh, both the investment we've made in the last 10 years and excited about what that looks like. So I was like, yes, more bike lanes. Then in the campaign, I started to see the data around Vision Zero, where we're doing a terrible job of not killing bicyclists and pedestrians. I'm pro Vision Zero. And it made me stop and say, do we have to do a reset here and really think about, are we making the right investments? Then I continued these living room conversations and meeting with people all over the city. And what I discovered is uh, from experts who've worked in this space in different parts of our community, our city, uh, that there's really hot spots and we can identify them pretty easily. We know where they're at. And so I'm back in saying, all right, I think it is clear we're making the right investments, but we probably need to ramp up and prioritize these specific areas where the risk is so great. And so for me, that's a great example of how I think what what leadership looks like is to say, I'm learning along this path together to figure out how we make our city safe for everyone to get around. Is that way more than you wanted to know about biking? No, that's exactly <laughs> what I wanted to know. But so I just want to clarify something because I've watched or I've heard you talk about bike lanes. And I think you're what you're talking about this evolution, because at one point you said to Denverite, I think they asked, do you yeah. think yeah. the city needs more bike lanes? And you said no. But now you're telling us yes in certain problem spots so what i so i started with yes okay i got to wait i'm worried we're not making the right investments for safety because the vision zero issue and we should reset and make sure we're making the right investments in the right way okay now i think what i understand is we're making the right investments but we probably need to prioritize these really high risk areas where we know people are being injured and hurt that's Mm -hmm. why vision zero is such a problem and so it is an evolution for me. Hmm. And I think that's how it should work. So you feel like the, the experts you're listening to, they're saying the, vi- the issue with Vision Zero, the reason why traffic deaths are not only not going down, but going up is because of these problem spots, not because of some broader systemic issues. Yeah, I, that's what okay. they're telling me. Okay. I'm open to still learning though. Okay, shifting gears, um, you've been very open about your husband who had passed away a few years ago after dealing with uh, drug and addiction issues. I wonder how that experience informs your view of issues like fentanyl, which we are dealing with, I mean, across the country, but also um, the prospect of safe injection sites, which um, data shows are effective in keeping people alive, but I believe you oppose them? Yeah, I'm, I, I really appreciate you asking this question. Uh, so first, I want to clarify, uh, my husband husband's addiction was alcohol. And I clarify this because um, the vast majority of people struggling with addiction in our nation today is actually alcohol. And I think we, uh, because it's been legal for so long, we don't talk about it in the same way we talk about other addictions. And it's just important to me to um, make sure people understand the reality of what most families are facing when we talk about addiction. That said, every single day that I was with Mike, you're really trying to figure out how to love and support someone, but not enable them. And it's hard. It's really hard. And uh, for me, a safe injection site was an enabling where, you know, I'm, I'm not helping someone address the issue that we know is destroying their life. And so that's my challenge. It's, um, uh, but I also approach it probably differently than everyone else. When, you know, you tell someone who is in agreement with my view of the world, they celebrate 
right? Like, like yes, finally, someone who understands. I, I don't mean to say it as a celebration. I mean to say it as, I think these are hard decisions. I don't think the answers are quite as black and white as we talk about them in public policy. And what I've said is if Denver went ahead and said we're going to have a safe injection site, I think we should talk about how do we measure success? What does that look like? Because it really is a path to sobriety that saves someone's life. Um, And so if we could agree on that, then maybe we could figure out which strategies are most impactful and effective instead of yelling and diminishing each other's lived experience that's just different. I appreciate that. Um, As a person who's been in recovery from alcohol for 17 years, um, I also, though, know there's really little to no options for inpatient treatment or um, even recovery spaces for, I I think most folks would tell you that the first step to recovery is stable housing. I walked a family member through uh, detox from heroin because I couldn't find any where to take that person to help them. So I think in theory, it's lovely, but what what would you do as a, a leader of the city to, to, to provide that or to create that, whatever that thing is that, that creates the safety net that you believe keeps people alive? Um, there's no question, you know, getting people uh, access to services is key. I, and like you, I recognize not only do we need more support for addiction, but also for behavioral health and mental health supports. This is part of the reason why I also started working with mayors throughout this region in this campaign to say, I think it's going to take more than just Denver trying to figure out how we provide the support and services that all of our cities need and our residents. And six mayors in the metro area endorsed that approach and said, we're in. Um, And so I would just say to you, I think this is part of what we have to build and ensure we're delivering Well, um, I'd like to move on to one of my favorite things that came up during the campaign, which is your snowplow ad. (laughs) When I saw that, I thought she's going to make the runoff. That is so good. (laughs) Thank you. Um, So one, congratulations. (laughs) Thanks. And two, um, so the ad tells the story of how you say you learned how to drive a snowplow because you got a complaint from somebody who drives a snowplow and Mm. you were listening. So you were like, I need to understand this person's job. Is that the real story? What tell us yeah, more details? Let me tell you what the really whole story? Happened? Yeah. So I was working for the city in the HR department at the time, and one of my jobs was to evaluate people's jobs. So I would meet with an employee and look at their duties and say, Oh, you're gonna be classified basically as this, and that classification determines your pay. So people feel strongly, right? And in this case, it was an equipment operator. And I was informing him, you're an equipment operator, not a heavy equipment operator, which meant a little bit less pay. Uh, And and he was like, I don't Mm -hmm. even think you understand this job. And I said to him, I think you're right. I I don't think I do fully. Um, So you know what I'm going to do? The city offers this CDL, basically get your commercial driver's license. I can't remember if it was eight or 12 weeks or something. You went to class two nights a week, Tuesdays and Thursdays. And then on Saturday, you drove equipment. And at the end of the class, um, he took a test, a written test, which is the state's commercial driver's license test, and a driving test. And then the city would rank you, depending on how well you did on both of those. Uh, and they invited, I think it was like the top 30 um, you know, graduates of the program to plow snow on call at our old airport. And I was the first woman to rank high enough to be asked to plow on call. So Uh, For women everywhere, Uh, I did it. I did it for probably two or three years. Um, And what it meant is when there was a snowstorm, so eight to 10 times a year, I'd be called out. I'd work my day job, 
And then I would be notified to report to duty at 7 p.m. And I'd work till 7 a.m. And I would plow on the runways out at the airport. It was a fantastic experience. And I I, got to tell you a little more about it, though, because I was young. Um, I uh, my father was a laborer. And so this is the thing he's most proud of me for doing. But I saw it probably as a rote task driving a plow like as I don't know, just driving. Right. Mm -hmm. What I discovered is there was an art to it. And these men took the time to teach me the art, um, how to feel the weight of this huge 22-foot plow on the runway and lift it just enough so I wouldn't pull the lights out. I guess what I walked away with was um, an understanding that being a professional has nothing to do with your title uh, or your degrees. It had everything to do with how you approach your work. I had such respect and loved being able to work with uh, those crews. Would you, um, so it, can, can we expect a mere bruff <laughs> on call again, you know, going out and plowing if, if the duty calls? No, no. Those teams are true professionals. They know what they're up to. And okay. what you can expect is they're going to get my full support to do the job they do for us. Okay, Kelly. So I'm going to go back in time to what feels like 500 years ago, but was actually a couple of weeks ago. Um, you were, there was only one person in the initial mayor's race out of 17 folks who dropped out. And that was Kwame Spearman. And he dropped mm. out and endorsed you. Um, he's now said that he's going to run for the Denver school board. Uh, did you ever talk to him about education? Yeah, we not about this at all. No. Interesting. Okay. Would you endorse his candidacy? I don't know. I haven't talked with him about the race yet or what he's thinking. And um, one of the things I have said is in November, we have three seats open on our school board. Um, you know, I've spent this campaign in people's living rooms uh, and coffee shops throughout the city. And there's huge concerns about our school board and people having confidence in them. And I've said I, I will endorse three candidates in November who restore confidence in our school board. And for me, this is about working uh, throughout Denver to understand from community perspective who those three would be um, and who we feel confident in. So we'll see. Well, we got a couple of questions for you from listeners. This first one I really love. Uh, This person says, I have a question for Kelly Bruff because she was recently endorsed by a group that is planning on peaceful protesting and calling for Jared Polis to sign an executive order for an all-weapons ban and statewide gun buyback program. They posted a video of Kelly saying she was, quote, all in. The video was very short, and I'm confused because I've been following the mayoral coverage pretty closely, and an all-weapons ban does not feel like it aligns with Kelly's platform. Um, So I think this person just wants clarification on your stance on guns and the uh, assault weapons ban prospect specifically. Yeah, I think, uh, well, I support, Denver has an assault weapons ban. I support it. I would support the state having an assault weapons ban. And I support the bills that have recently passed our legislature. And frankly, that Senator Rhonda Rhonda Fields has led uh, for so long. But I also recognize our kids today are providing the leadership on this issue. And, And I feel some shame as an adult that we haven't figured it out and our kids are demanding more from us. And I think that's fair. Uh, The group uh, that you saw the video posted uh, is a group of moms who are saying we need to protect our kids at all costs. And I do support that. And listen, when you get down to details of what would we do or not do, what would I support, uh, I'm happy to talk about those things. But right now, I think what they're suggesting is let's put all the options on the table and start to figure out uh, what we need to do to protect our kids. And I am all in to protect our kids. 
yeah, we've reached the end of our uh, our planned interview here, but we do have a big plug um, that actually all three of us, uh, <laughs> I think, are going to want to get behind. Yeah. We're co-hosting a really fun and uh, exciting forum with you, Kelly, and Mike Johnston on May 22nd uh, with our partners, New Era Colorado, One Colorado, Cobalt, and Color. You and your opponent are going to be eating progressively spicier hot wings. I got to tell you, I love progressive hot food. Okay, good. So you, are you a big <laughs> the hot sauce? next question is, are you a hot sauce person? Oh my gosh, I yeah. love hot sauce. Okay, no issues. No, We're going to bring some I guess we're, stuff we're about to find out. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, Kelly Bruff, thanks so much for, for coming back and joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Kelly. Could Kelly Bruff be our next mayor? Voters are deciding right now ahead of Election Day on June 6th. But don't vote just yet, because coming to your podcast feed tomorrow morning, we've got our interview with Bruff's opponent, the fast-talking former state senator, Mike Johnston. So I got to ask you about one thing that is just a, a personal obsession of mine, because ever it's since... It's not belt buckles. No, it's not. <laughs> no, it's not belt buckles. <laughs> That's all for today here on CityCast Denver. If you enjoyed the show, why not tell Stan Kroenke about us? Rate the show wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to our morning newsletter, Hey Denver, by texting Denver to 66866. We'll be back tomorrow morning with more news from around the city. Bye-bye. No, I think that's great. I'm sure we've done it before, but we're still trying to get him on the show. So 400th time's a charm. <laughs>